You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to a special edition of Nowhere to Run and Bible Prophecy Talk. This is a simulcast that will go out on both of those feeds, as I think it's relevant to both audiences. This is going to differ from the normal episodes in that I'm not going to do the question and answer format, though I'm still going to continue to do, to do that. What I'm going to do is play a two-plus-hour audio that I did for a friend a few months ago, uh, debunking partial preterism which also, by proxy, is debunking preterism, full preterism, as well as historicism. Historicism is different than both of those, but the this first audio is mostly debunking partial preterism, and it has elements that are also uh, applicable to historicists. But the second audio that I did actually gets into detail about historicism proper and really goes through verse-by-verse debunkings of it. Uh, But I'll probably put that audio out later and do a few more uh, fine-tuning things on that. I did some edits on this one. Particularly, I edited out all the the information that was uh, particular to this individual. You'll have to give it a little bit of the benefit of the doubt since I did it on my computer um, audio. A lot of you have received similar audios from me that are explaining things or answering questions on a personal level, and I don't usually do it with this um, this microphone. I do it with my computer microphone, so it's it's a little bad. It's not too bad, though, as far as the audio quality. You'll get used to it. I also added in this a few different things. I added a section that, that explained in more detail the idea uh, that both a historicist and a partial preterist often have on the popular level. They'll say that the origin of dispensationalism or the origin of uh, the Antichrist idea or, or various things were uh, is due to a Jesuit conspiracy. So I spent a lot of time debunking that particular idea, so I edited that in. A few notes about it. I say preterism a lot. I, I say preterism all throughout this audio. Uh, what I'm referring to almost always is partial preterism. And let me define a little bit of details here. Preterism, or full preterism, believes that all end times events have been fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem, including the resurrection of the dead and Jesus' second coming. Okay, So that's full preterism. They think that everything is done. The resurrection has happened and Jesus' second coming has happened. Not too many people are that extreme, though partial preterism is almost as extreme. Partial preterism holds that that all that most eschatological prophecies, like the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, the Day of the Lord, what they'll call the Judgment Coming of Christ, was fulfilled in 70 A.D. So when Jesus comes on the cloud to gather the elect from the four winds of the heaven and all that stuff, that happened in 70 A.D. According to partial preterism. Um, they would stop short of saying that the resurrection of the dead happened and that the stuff like in at the end of the book of Revelation, like the New Jerusalem and stuff like that, they still see that there is a point that the resurrection of the dead happens. And I think that most partial preterists would see full preterism as very close to heretical. Um, partial preterism has been on the rise the last few decades because of, really, because of R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul basically converted Hank Hanegraaff, this Bible answer man or whatever he calls himself, and those guys have been sort of the guys that have championed partial preterism in recent decades. 
In this first two-hour audio, I talk a lot about the history of futurism, dispensationalism, the idea that it was a Jesuit conspiracy. I talk about the dating of the Book of Revelation. And I spend a lot of time going verse by verse through every partial preterist's favorite uh, uh, section of Scripture, the Olivet Discourse, and talk about Luke 21 and Matthew 24. Uh, I then also go through expositions of some other passages, key passages like in Daniel, the Thessalonian letters. And then um, I talk about some of R.C. Sproul's specific views and why they're wrong. I also do that in the second audio. I sort of expand on some more things that R.C. Sproul uh, says. The second audio, which I hope to put up pretty soon, is goes into more detail of R.C. Sproul's arguments as well as in detail of some historicist claims as well. This is not the ideal way I wanted to, to put out a debunking of partial preterism. I have long hoped to put out a big video about this or perhaps even a book about it. Um, and I wanted to do it in a very clear way. After re-listening to this audio, though, I thought it was pretty well done. It was pretty clear. I spent a lot of time, you know, organizing my thoughts and stuff for this friend. So it actually translates into a debunking quite well. Though, again, I would like to do something on a bigger level with this. Though, right now, my current, uh, it, it's a little further down the road. It's high on my to-do list, but it's a little further down the road before I'll be able to get to it. If somebody out there listens to this has already a sort of idea about this and wants to help write a script or a book about this with me, uh, send me an email and tell me why you think that would be a good idea to do. I think it's an extremely important project. There is almost nothing out there, and it would just be a very, very helpful thing for people if this could actually be done and sort of organized and outlined in a proper way. So I'll just throw that out there before we get started. So without any further ado, here is... Partial preterism, full preterism, and a little bit of historicism debunked. Okay, a few broad notes before we get started. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the origin of preterism and uh, the belief of, about the origin of dispensationalism. These are two important topics that, um, you know, when you listen to a preterist presentation, there is inevitably a, a talking about dispensationalism and how it was invented in the 1830s or whenever uh, with John Darby. And they say that, they, 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 they say dispensationalism or use dispensationalism, that word, as everything that preterism isn't in a sense. That is the belief in a, in a coming antichrist, the belief in a tribulation, and the belief in a rapture. Those three things that are distinct in preterism, the belief that those things are not yet future, um, that's what they are saying dispensationalism believes. I mean, that's just obvious. I mean, that's when you think of dispensationalism right now, you're thinking of the belief in an antichrist, the belief in a tribulation, the belief in a rapture. And you say, I don't believe that dispensationalism stuff. That was invented in the 1830s. But that idea right there is completely false. Um, and... In 1830s, let's start it like this. The, in 1830s, there really was something invented by John Darby. He invented the pre-tribulational rapture. You can't find the pre-tribulational rapture, which is a, a, a kind of a, basically a niche thing. It's talking about the timing of one of those three things, the timing of the rapture. It, it's, a, it's a theory about the timing of one of three things. But those three things themselves, what a, dis, what, what a preterist is saying that dispensationalism is, has been the foundation of the early church from the beginning. The you can find every I mean take the earliest 
writing ever, the Didache, is the earliest non-canonical writing of the early church. Not only does it talk about an Antichrist and a tribulation and a, and a rapture, it uses Matthew 24 to talk about those things. This is the people that lived through 70 AD that believed that Matthew 24 was talking about a future Antichrist, a future uh, resurrection, and a future uh, or a future uh, uh, rapture in the midst of a tribulation, and, uh, and they called that imminent intertribulationalism. That's what the early church believes, is that there was going to be a future rapture out of the midst of a, of a persecution or a tribulation. And this is Irenaeus, this is you know Hippolytus, this is Justin Martyr, this is everybody. The belief in an Antichrist, a future coming Antichrist, that was obviously post-Nero, post-70 AD, post all, the early church had lived through Nero, and they still believe the Antichrist was yet future. That's the view of the early church. That so those three things. So so when you hear somebody say, "Oh, dispensationalism was invented in the 1830s," you you, you can't believe that what they're referring to is the things that are distinct from preterism, because all the things that are really dispensationalism don't require a view of Daniel nine. It doesn't require a view of anything about John Darby. You don't need John Darby or anything. You just need the Bible, and you just need, I mean, and, and that is evident, the best proof that you just need the Bible is because that is almost, uh, I mean, different churches completely disconnected with one another, or not, they're not learning from each other, they're just learning from the Bible, are coming to the same conclusions over and over and over. And that's the same thing that happened once the Bible was translated into English again, and that's why you see a resurgence of the what we call dispensationalism after it, the Bible was once again printed in the common language and you see people coming to the same conclusions again. Okay, I wanted to do this edit to talk in more detail about a theory about the origin of dispensationalism or futurism or uh, some people will say the pre-tribulational rapture. It's funny when you hear this from people and I probably get an email a week about this from somebody saying that, oh Chris, why are you dealing with the book of Revelation or whatever? Don't you know that the whole idea that that stuff is going to happen in the future was invented by the Jesuits? Um, and so, and they, they throw these two names out there, Francisco Rivera, Manuel Lucunza. And, uh, I want to talk in detail about how silly that is. And you should know that, uh, either one of two people are, are emailing me about this Calvinists or Seventh Day Adventists. Um, and a lot of conspiracy people do too. And I don't think a lot of conspiracy people recognize that a lot of the websites that they go on and they find this, you know, dispensationalism is bad, it's all the work of uh, evil and everything else, it's the work of the Jesuits. They don't know that behind a lot of those websites are Seventh-day Adventists or whatever. Seventh-day Adventists have long been sort of in the conspiracy world, sort of drawing people in. It's kind of an evangelism tool, I guess, for them. Um, but the point is, is that this theory is not held by really smart Seventh-day Adventists, like scholarly Seventh-day Adventists, and I'll point a few articles out in that. And then I'll also show that it's also not held by smart Calvinists, who are also sometimes uh, uh, against dispensationalism, and the, the more radical of them will throw this theory out. But I want you to know that this is not something that is done on a scholarly level. This is a purely pop theory. <laughs> There is no better way to say that because no scholar would actually put this forward. And let me show you why. I think before we do, though, it's so important to recognize that a lot of the people making this claim really don't know what the terms that they're talking about mean. I think so. It's important to define those terms so we can see the distinction of them and see how silly it is to to say that they were invented by the Jesuits. So we have to first define dispensationalism 
you know, properly. Basically, and I'm going to give basically a broad definition of it here, and that's the that there is a distinction between Israel and the church, that uh, the promises in the Old Testament and other places about Israel uh, are still going to come to pass. Like those promises haven't been uh, annulled and given to the church. Basically, that's dispensationalism. Dispensationalism doesn't necessarily have to include all this other stuff that we're about to talk about, but that's basically what dispensate. There are that there are different dispensations in the way that God deals with men. Okay, that's dispensationalism. The idea of the Antichrist being a future person—that's another concept that I think most of the time people that claim this—that's what they really mean. Because the the anti-Jesuit angle here is that. You're Chris. You're you're trying to take the heat off the Pope or 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 the Catholic Church by saying that the Antichrist is going to be somebody else besides the Pope or the Antichrist. So in and so their view, what they're trying to say is that the idea that the Antichrist will be anybody except for the the Catholic Church or the Pope was invented by Jesuits. So really, I think what they mean when they say dispensationalism was invented by this by the by the Jesuits is that the idea of of an early personal Antichrist or a late a future personal antichrist person that is an antichrist the um but they also say things like futurism futurism is about the broadest kind of thing that you can say it basically is the view that uh it it's it, it's defined essentially by a literal view of the bible that is a face value hermeneutic and which requires you to see things like the book of revelation as future or things that are explicitly said, and we're going to talk a lot about that kind of stuff as we get into this audio, but futurism is very broad. So let's talk about this idea that the Jesuits invented futurism or dispensationalism or the rapture or the idea that there's an antichrist in the future. Did anything get invented like that in the 1600s with these guys? The answer is absolutely not. Here's the issue. There isn't really any scholar that would debate you about the idea of of that futurism is the view of the earliest church. I mean, and when I say that, I mean, I'm not talking about the wishy-washy church fathers when you get into sort of that area between the Catholic church and the early church fathers. I'm talking about the earliest writings we have from the disciples of the apostles kind of people. I, I mean, the Didache itself, which is the earliest writing that there is, earliest Christian writing period, the Didache is, reads exactly like your average uh, prophecy conference today. I mean, it is the same stuff that we're all talking about, a future antichrist, a future tribulation, um, you know, a rapture in great detail. This isn't something you can kind of say, well, they, they might have believed this or that. No, no, they believed and they wrote extensively about it. In fact, they believed, as I mentioned, it was Matthew 24 that they viewed a lot of that stuff from. Anyway, they, they, they it's pretty clear from the Didache, but not just the Didache, it's all the people before the 200s. Irenaeus, which is the earliest church father. The earliest writings of a church father is Irenaeus. Irenaeus, we can find dispensationalism proper. We can find all the ideas of a future Antichrist. Everything, again, like a modern prophecy, you know, conference. Uh, Hippolytus. I mean, it's great to read Hippolytus. I mean, some of his theories are a little wacky, but the guy is clearly a futurist, dispensationalist, you know, all this other stuff. And I, I, I think that that... Nobody would argue that. I don't think anybody could sit down and say none of these guys were. So, again, this is not something that a scholarly Seventh-day Adventist or a scholarly Calvinist would ever try to say, that futurism or dispensationalism or whatever was invented 
by Jesuits. This is just a, a pop thing used to basically scare people. So where are they even getting this idea that Francisco Ribera or Manuel Lacunza invented dispensationalism or, or futurism or whatever? First of all, you need to know that the people that quote this are really quoting from the same source. It's a lot of copy and pasting jobs, sort of similar to a lot of uh, that kind of stuff. I'll put a few links in the show notes uh, from a Calvinist, by the way, who shows how ridiculous that is. And I'll also put a link in the show notes from a Seventh-day Adventist that not only shows that this idea is wrong, but he also shows that there actually is a connection to Seventh-day Adventism with these guys, although it's not really, it's not the stuff that uh, he debunks the idea and then puts it back in Seventh-day Adventism. And this is an Adventist. So an Adventist needs to be pretty careful when using this particular conspiracy. But, um, so so they're quoting from the same source, but why are they even quoting from it? What truth is there in this idea? And in order to understand that, and I want to do this in a complete way, so I'm going to discuss a little bit about church history so we can really get this. First of all, we've already discussed a little bit that the first 200 years was um, basically a literal hermeneutic. They believed that the Bible said something and it meant it and they wrote that about it extensively and that's where we have the origin of all this stuff now about 200 the year 200 um somewhere around there origin is a it was a scholar in alexandria and he really took an allegorical view it's the first thing that we really know of of somebody saying hey it says that there's going to be you know a thousand years or you know 1260 days but Let's just say that it's not what it means. It just means a period of time. Just sort of erase that and write period of time. And Origen really was the originator of that idea that you can take the Bible allegorically, metaphorically. You don't have it when the Bible is expressly saying something literally. Everybody knows that you're supposed to take the Bible literally when it says, uh, or uh, metaphorically when it says stuff like, as I mentioned later, wings of eagles or something like that. But when the Bible speaks as if it's talking literally, then you can take it allegorically. That's what Origen did. And Augustine later on picked up this idea of the allegorical interpretation of scripture when it says stuff, it doesn't really mean it kind of thing. And that became the the way that you were supposed to interpret the Bible for the Catholic Church, which of course was convenient for the Catholic Church because they wanted to do a lot of things that were not biblical. So when they had a hermeneutic, we're saying, okay, yeah, we can look at the Bible. It says that, but it doesn't mean that. So that's a very advantageous hermeneutical position for the Catholic Church is an allegorical interpretation. So that's what they held for the better part of a thousand years. And all Christendom, you know, unfortunately at that time, really there only was one game in town, the Catholic Church. And so, and they didn't have the Bible in their common language. So basically that's what people got, you know, especially in terms of eschatology, they got the allegorical version of it and all this stuff. So what happened during the Reformation was the first, the first people got the Bible in their own language. And that's why the Reformation essentially happened is because people started reading the Bible for themselves, realizing that the Bible was saying stuff that was literal. It wanted you to actually do this stuff and want you to actually believe this stuff. And they started saying stuff like, well, the Bible actually says this, but you're saying that it doesn't. And, and so that doesn't jive. So that's really what started the Reformation. The key issue was the proper key issue, which was the doctrine of justification by faith. That is 
salvation was the the hobby horse of the of the reformation rightly so if you're going to argue about anything in terms of literal or allegorical you better argue about salvation hey this says we're saved this way but you guys are saying we're saved all this stuff that's not in the bible so that's what the reformation was now so what happened then okay this is the jesuit part of the whole thing so there then came a time of the what was known as the Counter-Reformation, where there's sort of a back-and-forth view. Uh, you're the Antichrist. No, you're the Antichrist. No, you're the Antichrist. Where they were coming up with a lot of different theories about Revelation really quickly. Because the Reformers, like John Calvin, was were calling the, the Pope the Antichrist and the Catholic Church and all this stuff. And the uh, Catholic Church was calling the Reformers the Antichrist and all this stuff. So they kept going back and forth and having all... Everybody was like coming up with theories about the end times like that. And... I'll say, of course, you would think that the Antichrist was the Pope. I mean, with really good reason. I mean, if you look at it really broadly, what else could it be? I mean, you've got the, here is a guy who's really powerful. He is killing Christians. He's, you know, persecuting Christians and stuff like that. He is, uh, uh, you know, saying he's got bad doctrine, and you can interpret that as being blasphemous in a way. Uh, you know, all the stuff that they say, I mean, the, the, if you look at it broadly, why not? I mean, that's a, a really great interpretation. It's a lot like the idea today, if you look at, oh, I don't know, Obama broadly or the or Islam broadly. It has such great sex appeal because it's the big enemy of our day. And sure, let's make that be the Antichrist. That sounds good. But it's just like the Obama is the Antichrist people or Islam is the Antichrist people. If you get real down and dirty with the details with them, that's when it starts to fall apart. And they generally don't. I mean, you're not going to find an Obama uh, is the Antichrist person doing a verse by verse of Daniel and Revelation and whatever. They're going to cherry pick verses that agree with them and ignore those that don't. John Calvin, who was the reason why uh, the Pope started being called the Antichrist, essentially, well, not really, I mean, it was before him, but he certainly popularized it. He never did a verse by verse of Revelation. It's one book of the Bible he didn't do. And so, anyway, the point is, is that it's a good theory. It's a it's a theory that I don't think holds up to the to the details of the Antichrist and the details because the Bible, remember, is exceedingly detailed about things like the abomination of desolation and all the stuff about the Antichrist. I mean, I talk about ninety characteristics of Mystery Babylon. You want to get into individual characteristics of the Antichrist? There are a lot, and every one has to match up if you're going to have it be the Antichrist. It doesn't work with Obama. It doesn't work with the Imam Mahdi, and it certainly doesn't work with the Pope, in my view. And, you know, you can go through my commentaries and, and you can go through stuff like that if you want to know more about that. But the point is, um, what happened then was Francisco Ribera, who, or Manuel Lacunza, who was using the writings of Man, uh, 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 Francisco Ribera, basically, uh, in his, you know, pointing back to them being the Antichrist or whatever, he takes a literal hermeneutic on stuff and points back to the church fathers while doing so. And it was the pointing back to the church fathers, especially especially in relation to the so-called day-year theory that was the revolutionary thing that he did. And this is also why people know about this today. And it, that is because the Seventh-day Adventists really, really hate this thing. That is, somebody talking against the day-year theory. If you don't know, Seventh-day Adventists believe that Jesus came back in 1844 as a part of another date setting thing. William Miller did it. The Jehovah's Witnesses are also hold to the same thing that Seventh-day Adventists do. Uh, they are historicists. The only people that really are still historicists are Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists. 
there are a few sort of straggler Protestant historicists as well, but uh, they are you know hard to find nowadays and usually are uh you know not too familiar with i think historicism proper because historicism is absolutely dependent upon the so-called day year theory it, without the day year theory there is no historicism and i don't think a lot of historicists realize that now the cults really can't change their position at this point because they've got so much invested in like saying hey look what we say is the absolute truth we can't ever be wrong and all this stuff that the cults do but the point is is that in this particular instance, everybody else has moved on. And I even think that the sort of, the sort of straggler Protestant historicists would move on if they really realize the implications of what they're saying and how, anyway, I'll, I'll do a little bit more about historicism later. But what Manuel Lacunza did was essentially say this. Okay, um, and you gotta remember, everybody at this time basically believed a version of the day-year theory. I need to explain what that is. Basically, it's, you know, the Bible speaks of the three and a half year period a lot. It, it mentions it in the book of Revelation uh, uh, several times. It mentions it in the book of Daniel several times. It mentions it other places. But basically, a three and a half year period, it's discussed in a lot of ways. It's said 1,260 days. It said, you know, time, times and a half a time. It's said 42 months. And, you know, we could go on. But basically, what the day-year theory is, is saying, well, maybe that's not really months or days. Maybe we should just make the days years. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists do this with a, a prophecy in Daniel, the 2300-day uh, prophecy, which I talked about in my commentary on that. On, I think it's Daniel 8. But the point is that that they basically take when it says days in the Bible and and just make it years. And... So this is beneficial for an allegorical interpretation and saying, well, we don't really need to deal with those end times. That thousand-year period isn't really a thousand-year period and all this other stuff. So anyway, everybody basically believed a version of that because, as I mentioned, they all sort of copy and pasted the Catholic version of eschatology. So the Reformers held a version of that at this time, as well as the Catholics represented by, you know, Manuel Lacunza or whatever. So they both believed something that nobody believes now, which is sort of a historicist view. Now, what happened is that uh, Manuel Lacunza, in trying to prove almost a completely separate point, points back to the church fathers and says, look, the day-year theory, we don't have to take that as days or, or as years. How about it just means what it always meant? You know, 42 months, how about that is 42 months? And 1,260 days, why can't that be 1,260 days? And then points back to the church fathers who he had more access to than everybody else is, you know, being part of the Catholic Church and saying, uh, look, this is this is what everybody always believed. And this is the reason that Seventh-day Adventists hate him so much. And they believe, oh, well, he's he's the guy that originated the thing that's so damaging to Seventh-day Adventism. Because you cannot debunk the day-year theory and Adventism or any other form of historicism. And all the cults, basically, in their eschatology fall apart. So that's why you there's websites by Seventh-day Adventists saying that Manuel Lacunza is the orig originator of all bad things, and that's devolved into he was the originator of dispensationalism and futurism and the Antichrist, which is all utterly nonsensical. But anyway, so it's this day-year theory thing that the Seventh-day Adventists uh, are all hot and bothered about. Now, that's just a completely separate thing. Perhaps I'll do uh, another podcast about that particular issue, but Think of how silly of an idea that is, that a guy could invent the idea of taking 1,260 days or 42 months as 42 months and 1,260 days. You don't invent that. You just read it. And the 
the proof that you don't have to invent it is the first 200 years of the church who were just reading the Bible said, hey, it says three and a half year uh, period is coming after a dude sits in the temple and calls himself God. And then there's a period of tribulation. And then there's a period where uh, we are all essentially raptured out of the midst of that tribulation. And then the judgment of the wicked begins. They just read that. And that's what everybody believed. And this this guy, everybody's sort of in the haze of Catholic doctrine at this counter-Reformation, Reformation time. And he's the first guy that says, hey, and he's not even trying to prove what I'm trying to prove. He just happened to point back to the church fathers and refute the day-year theory in the process, which is why we know about it from the Seventh-day Adventists, because that is very, very dangerous to their belief system. So in conclusion on this point, the conspiracy that the Jesuits invented futurism or dispensationalism or the Antichrist or the rapture or any of that, anything like that is very ridiculous. It's easily refuted. Just look at any of the early church writings, read the Didache, read Irenaeus, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then I explained a little bit more about the history of why this happened and everything else like that. If you want to know more about a refutation of the day year theory, check the show notes. I'll link some stuff about Daniel that I did and some other things, including articles from Calvinists and Seventh-day Adventists that agree with what I just said, as well as some other information that you may be interested in. Okay, now I'm going to move back into the audio, and I think I'm going to start talking about the date of the book of Revelation. An interesting note about that is things like the date of the book of Revelation. I know that's a big issue in preterism, but I, I think about it because of the proof text, one of the proof texts about the date of Revelation uh, that is from Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was disciple of Polycarp, you know, and Polycarp was a disciple of the guy, of the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. And so Irenaeus, who is one, you know, is the student of a student of John, who uh, basically says point blank that you know he, his his argument is he's trying to do an exposition of the uh, of the six six six, and he's he's like look don't even worry about it right now you know when this name shows up we'll be able to figure it out right and he's trying to talk some sense into some stuff that people were saying or whatever, and and he's you know has a really good point about it but that's not the interesting thing. First of all, the interesting thing is that he's talking about a future antichrist in that passage but he says but in in part of his apologetic for it is he says look we know when this thing was written which is in the latter part of the reign of Domitian of course Domitian is after Nero uh, it would make John about you know in, in, you know an old man it would be the 90s 95 which of course you know we could talk about later but a preterist cannot have there is no preterism if the book of Revelation is late dated and when I was doing an independent sort of research on the the date of Revelation uh, of maybe a few months ago, I noticed that that there was this like in the preterism. I, I came into contact with preterism a lot because I mean, preterists must have the Book of Revelation be dated before seventy A.D. There is no other theology dispensation. You could be a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Catholic or, or Protestant or anybody else in the whole world doesn't have a theological reason to date the re in the study of the book of Revelation. They just can look at things like this quote of Irenaeus and other uh, things and just say, okay, how old is this thing? I mean, what what intertextual reasons do we have to date this thing? Like the seven churches, um, you know, there's an argument that the seven churches that are mentioned there are in that context, only in that late time, you know, that you can go through different things. And this debate 
goes on, but a preterist, literally preterism cannot exist if it is dated as Irenaeus says. So that's an interesting part about preterism, and one that I think is worthy of looking at. Uh, I, I won't go into that anymore. I'll just, I'll just put a link to perhaps a debate about the date of Revelation and, and put it in the uh, links here. And I will do that only to say that, of course, that is a extremely important thing. That makes or breaks preterism. So it could be that you look at that and say, it is totally illogical that the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD, therefore preterism is wrong. So I'll put it in there just in case that line of thinking uh, uh, is something that you would be interested in. But I don't put much stock in it because uh, when I did the study of it, I mean, I think that it's conclusively post, um, post 70 AD, but, um, but I don't think that I can absolutely say that for certain, though I think that all the evidence points that way. I, I wouldn't use it as my big argument against preterism. I don't think that it's necessary to, to argue something that is not something you can prove with the Bible. I mean, you, I think that that's the way I would go if trying to prove the date of Revelation. I would try to prove it with the Bible. That is to say, things like uh, the, the the churches that are mentioned there in the first two chapters or whatnot. But I don't. I think when you have to get into other things besides the Bible, it just becomes a little bit more difficult to say yes or no about stuff. So, anyway, let's move on to some Bible study. Okay, let's turn to Matthew 24 and talk about the main proof text first and then maybe go into some of the details. This is, as you know, probably the, the cornerstone of, uh, of most uh, preterism discussions. I mean, if there's going to be a verse-by-verse -verse study done by a preterist, it's going to be of Matthew 24, perhaps Revelation 13 or something like that. Um, that's pretty much what you get, and so it's. It, I think it's a good place to sort of focus in where we have clear-cut discussion about what this verse means or how they're going to try to explain this verse or that verse. So it's a good place to, to do a point-counterpoint, but it's also obviously so crucial. I think that there is a, there is a, like anything that is wrong, that it is has an element of truth to it, that is to say, the preterist has a valid argument here, um, and it needs to be. I think we're doing a disservice to say oh, it has nothing to do with 70 A.D. Um, because I think I'll demonstrate that it does, in a sense, have to do with 70 A.D. and 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 so that gives fuel to the argument of the preterist when they say these people don't think this has anything to do with 70 A.D. and it's an unfortunate. Uh, consequence is that it emboldens the idea that it's all about 70 AD. And we'll talk maybe more about the macro idea of, of the Olivet Discourse and how it relates to the temple and everything else uh, as we kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about this, this section of scripture. But let's talk about some of the specifics. Let's zoom right into verse 34 because this is the main uh, proof text for preterism. Basically, it's uh, it's the first page in Han Hannah Graff's book. It is the verse. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. It's interesting. R.C. Sproul um, 
his argument about preterism, and there have been some papers written, you know, refuting this particular idea, and uh, I'll remember to send those papers to you too. Papers, timing. So basically, the that his his argument for why he became a preterist has to do primarily with what he calls, like, actually, I don't know what he calls them, something like timing signature verses or something like that. There's like four or three or four verses that that are kind of like this one that that give timing ideas and he's actually sort of react you know a reactionary sort of idea here to some hyper critics of the bible like bertrand russell who who said jesus was a failed apocalyptic scholar you know or not scholar but a, a, a prophet that is to say jesus you know said that this generation won't pass until all these things take place and you know nobody saw jesus coming on the clouds or whatever so you know jesus was a failed prophet so um, that's sort of the his idea that is R.C. Sproul's argument was to try to find a way to answer those hypercritics, and he answers them with preterism. That is to say, preterism is kind of like his his way to deal with these verses, but it's not the only way to deal with these verses. It's not a way that is required grammatically or contextually or, or whatever. It is just a way. And what I hope to show you here is, is it's not the best way at all. Uh, I don't think that Bertrand Russell or anybody else, you know, has a leg to stand on in their argument, but I don't think that we have to go to preterism to, to do that. And it seems that R.C. Sproul is just blatantly saying that's why he went to preterism, is to try to answer this argument. But if that argument can be answered better in a different way, then why go to preterism? Because you lose so much, And as I hope to demonstrate as we go through this study. Okay, so truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. All these things. Which things? Well, the whole reason this this Matthew 24 exists is because a question was asked, um, and it says, um, you know, what, what are going to be the signs, uh, the sign of your coming in the close of the age? Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So, we're wanting... This is the uh, ESV I'm reading from. The disciples want to know what are going to be the sign of his coming. How, what kind of events are we going to see before the parousia? Um, and Jesus gives them exactly what they asked for. He gives them a bunch of different signs that would uh, tell them when his coming would be near. And he finishes up this discussion of signs um, about verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 29 really marks the end of the signs. I mean, we've got the abomination of desolation, you've got uh, you know earthquakes in various places and you've got all these other things that he says, but really 29 is the end of the signs. Then Verse 30 and 31 talk about the event itself, that is, the parousia. These, the rest were the signs leading up to the parousia. Verse 30 and 31, he ends the discussion here with the parousia itself. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This closes, in verse 31, the answer to their question, a play-by-play, -play, what are the signs, and what will be the event itself. 
from 32, he, he begins the parable of the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. So we're now he's now going to discuss what has just been said. He's going to talk about these signs that he's just got done answering their question. What are the signs of your coming? Uh, you know, how will we know that this coming is near? And he answers them now, really gets to the bottom of their question, and after he gets done explaining the events. Verse 32. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, which things? The things that I just got done saying that are things that are going to precede my coming. When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So, grammatically, um, there is no reason to suggest that he's talking, to, pointing at the disciples and saying, this generation. That is, you guys won't pass away. In fact, I mean, why wouldn't he just say, you fellas won't pass away, or I guess you could, whatever. You, you could say that a lot of different ways, but there's no reason grammatically to say that this, the word this, must mean I am, while saying the word this, pointing at the disciples, or have both of my hands pointed out uh, as a demonstration of referring to the, the people standing before me. In fact, it seems much more likely grammatically that he's referring to the verse pr prior to this, that is to say, um, um, so when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say this generation, what generation? The generation that sees all these things. And so I would say not only grammatically makes sense that this generation is, is essentially saying the generation that sees all these things, but I would also say that it contextually makes sense as a res because of the fig tree parable. It is essentially saying the exact same thing as the fig tree parable. When a fig, when a, uh, as soon as the branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. That is to say, when you see a fig tree, uh, you know it's it's winter or you know spring is coming, and hey, there it is, a fig tree uh, put forth its leaves. That you know that summer is just around the co corner. It's it's an inevitability because you're now seeing seeing the signs of the coming summer. And he's essentially saying the generation that sees the signs that I just got done saying will see the coming summer uh, is going to be just around the corner in the same way that the fig tree. It's it's saying the same thing. It's talking about a timing issue. One of the reasons that this is so important, probably, and the reason that I would suggest that Daniel and John and Revelation also make the same case, that is to say, they all say a timing issue regarding, for example, the abomination of desolation, one of the signs that Jesus mentions, that they make uh, a big deal that it's 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, lots of different ways, that they, time times, half time, middle of the week, lots of ways that we say this three and a half year period, but it's it's almost um, as if to say, this, this what Jesus just got done describing, a time that should scare the daylights out of anybody that he just got done talking to, because it's going to be a time of persecution unlike anything that's ever happened before. Mothers are going to give up sons, and, and it's just going to be craziness. That time, 
it, it, when you see that stuff, it's not going to be long before I come back, not only to save you guys, but to destroy those guys. Because the coming, the parousia, which is something completely lost in preterist and unfortunately pre-tribulationalist too, but the parousia has a dual function, and that's what confuses everybody. Uh, and I, I maybe we'll have time to demonstrate that. But if you want more on that, you can see my uh, my video called uh, uh, "The Rapture Puzzle Solved" with Matthew 24. But it is, as he's saying here, it's to to save you guys and to destroy the wicked. My point in saying that was that the reason why the fig tree parable is necessary and the reason why this this saying that this generation won't pass until all these things take place is to do two things. One is to give encouragement about those things. Look, these things are going to be bad, but it's not going to be long before I come and take care of business. So, so try to endure through it, uh, knowing that it's not going to endure forever. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that this, it's always, when it's discussed, when this time is discussed, it's, it's a short time, but it, we need to endure. The, the, the first part of the revelation is, is, is admonishing uh, the churches to endure the time um, and if they, to, to try to, even though it will be short. But anyway, the other thing that it's doing is it is preventing a series of false teachings about um, that these signs are, you know, a lot of people interpret Revelation chapter 6 or Matthew 24 here as having occurred at any time ever. You know, hey, I see some earthquakes over there, or hey, I see a, a famine over here, hey, I see a false messiah over there, over 100 year periods, 1,000 year periods. Some people say, you know, th this stuff has been going on for a thousand years. You know, we're in the process of, of the signs happening. You know, let's, let's, let's all look at the earthquake meters to see how many earthquakes are happening because and, you know, over the last 100 years, earthquakes have been increasing, you know, significantly, as if to say that the signs that Jesus was talking about are occurring over this long period of time. So in, in, a, in addition to an encouragement, this is also preventing, uh, by the fig tree parable and the subsequent language here, preventing people from believing that this is happening over a super long period of time. Another way that that is, and apparently very important for us to know, is demonstrated by the describing of it as birth pangs. If you look at the parallels here to Revelation chapter 6, uh, which uh, in that video that I did, um, Matthew 24, about Matthew 24, it is, is showing those parallels, it'll also make a lot more sense to see these seals broken as, a, as domino effects that are happening with some rapidity. It's uh, intending to give us information about the the flow of events here as opposed to uh, uh, talking about when this will happen. And I think that a good way to demonstrate that is with verse 36. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of the heaven, of heaven nor the sun, but the Father only. Because here, it's almost a, 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 a nail in the coffin to the idea that he's saying this will happen in 70 AD because he just got done saying, you know, because he just said, after that, I don't, you know, even know the day or the hour. So for him to look at the generation before him and say, hey, this is going to happen, you know, in 70 AD, and then to next verse or two, two verses later say, I don't know when it's going to happen. But giving, but seeing it as him telling about the flow of events, this is all going to happen. When you see the first event, you're going to see the second event, or you're going to see all the events. The generation that sees the first event is going to see all of them. You're going to see all these things as the uh, 
fig tree parable says, when you see all these things, you notice that it's near at the very gate. So the signs that you're going to see uh, are, are demonstrating to you that my coming is near is his focus on this verse and not to say that it's going to happen in 70 AD, which would be problematic for him just saying that I don't know when it's going to happen. But let's move on from this and let's test the hypothesis that um, this verse is, is saying that Jesus was saying that his his coming, his parousia, um, was going to happen in 70 AD, even though I don't think that is grammatically necessary at all. Uh, nor in, in fact, I think it's a grammatically worse decision, but I also don't think it's uh, contextually makes any sense uh, concerning the fig tree parable or the subsequent uh, things that he says. I think even if, even though we don't, I don't think that, let's test the hypothesis that he was saying that his coming was going to be in their lifetime. Now that one particular option of his coming being in their lifetime is 70 AD. It's not the only option. In fact, I think the only reason that people propose it is it's the only historically significant thing that happened in the lifetime of the apostles. So they've got to like cram all these signs into 70 AD uh, just because of their one decision to make this verse, uh, even though it's not necessary, be talking about his coming being the lifetimes of the apostles as opposed to the coming being uh, referring to who sees this beginning of the fig tree will see the summer. Okay. Um, let's test it. Let's start at verse 5 because this is when Jesus starts giving some signs that uh, are interpreted under preterism as being having occurred in and around 70 AD. So we'll just look at the, some of the signs and see if they occurred for what we can see. First, for, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. This is a specific thing that he's saying that word there, I am the Christ. You know, he's giving a, a, a the there, even a ha. It, it means, I am the Messiah. There are going to be many people saying, I am the Messiah. And, and we don't, not only, I mean, this isn't me talking, I'll, I'll quote, uh, a, a preterist here uh, who I respect is working in other places, tectonics.org. Uh, this is, I like him because he's very thorough in his uh, research and stuff. He's the guy who really uh, got me started on the zeitgeist debunking and everything else. He says this, I've noted in other contexts that until the time of Bar Kokhba, there is no evidence of any person actually coming forth and saying, I am Messiah, or any person being identified as such. Uh, and I've made and I've argued that to make such a clear identification of one's messianic self was not likely permitted socially. We do, of course, have people who took some punitive military action against Rome and failed miserably. Uh, he gives a few examples here. Uh, Thudius and Judas are two examples, and he mentions a few others. But basically, there is no real, you know, there's no preterist example here. You know, they didn't even find anything in history of saying one person claimed to be the Messiah. They said, oh, it wasn't permitted for people to do that socially or whatever. At least that's what uh, what uh, he says right there. All that to say, there is no historical fulfillment of this. So, there's no way for us to check this or whatever, but it seems unlikely as this is the, the first thing that he says and he tells us not to be led astray or tells whomever not to be led astray. But he says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. One would think that if, if this was true, if many did come and, and said, I am the Christ, that there would be some record of that. 
but uh, we don't have anything. So we just take on faith that that was uh, fulfilled somehow in 70 AD. Matthew 24, verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. This one is a lot like the next one. For nation will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdom, and there will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pangs. These can basically be put into any context ever in the history of the world. Anybody that has a view about the Olivet Discourse uses verse 6 and 7 to, to prove that their version of the events is true. Because you can make wars and rumors of wars uh, very general. And ri nations rising against nation and kingdom against king kingdom uh, very general. I do not believe that this is general. In fact, I think if you if you follow the thread that Jesus is 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 doing here, which he is referring well, he he later on tells us in Revelation six what specific wars these are going to be and why he would say it like this: nation rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. What he's talking about here is a very specific takeover of nations and kingdoms that that is of a gravity and a sort that is unlike anything that we've seen. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that. This isn't like, yeah, Rome had a little war with Parthia, which, of course, nothing at that time was even that bad. Judah was like the main thing on their agenda, okay? And uh, I know I've read Preterists saying, oh, there was wars everywhere in the Roman Empire to try to make this make sense. And like I said, anybody can make that happen if they want to. But really, there wasn't that much going on. And, and But what Jesus is referring to here, and if you take this back to Daniel, and you take, as we'll look at later, Daniel... 936 and, and, and following the what the Antichrist does is he starts to basically start to roll over nations like dominoes and he the specific nations that he takes over are clear and distinct it's a complete utter takeover it's not a sort of wishy-washy thing and he ultimately is one who is proclaimed to be a great maker of war who can stand against him a great conqueror and that's why the first seal that corresponds to this in Revelation 6 is he is given a bow and told out to go and conquer. So this wars and rumors, wars, nations rising against nations and kingdom against kingdoms are not exactly uh, a general thing the way Jesus is referring to it, but yes, you can generalize this as long as you're willing to not make these very severe. Um, you can make them be right now if you want to. Iraq and Iran after all and Afghanistan. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll give... Six and seven, I'll give a pass. I'll say, okay, yeah, preterists can have that if they really want it. Uh, eight, for so these are the beginning of the birth pangs. Number nine, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Okay, here is a difficult thing because we're now talking about people being hated and delivered to death for Jesus' name's sake. There is nobody that I would know that they would they would make the case that what happened in 70 AD the people that were left in the city that were had anything to do with getting killed in 70 AD were not people that were being killed for Jesus's namesake there isn't a scenario there isn't any Christians in the city I mean there just aren't anybody that's getting killed for Jesus's namesake in 70 AD I mean there might have been like a straggler or a shopkeeper somewhere or something but you know, there wasn't anybody that was being killed for, for Jesus' namesake in 70 AD. And this is a problem, of course, for pre-tribulationalists who don't like this chapter because they 
think that it, you know they 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 don't want Christians to be persecuted either, and so they have a the theology that they've developed, like we talked about in 1830, that tries to say this is just uh, don't have to pay attention to this, and they're they're wrong for their own reasons. But but this is Jesus saying clearly, killed for my namesake, not something that happened in 70 A.D. No matter which way you slice it. Uh, next verse. Um, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, uh, this, I think one could make a case that this happened in 70 AD, you know, false prophets ar arose there, you know, according to Josephus and all this stuff. And so I would almost give this a, a you know, you can have this kind of thing to preterists if you, if you really want it, but I would say that the the real issue you have to deal with here is the false prophet in Revelation 13 because clearly you've got if you've got to make you've got to go to that specific place in Revelation 13 and 14 where the false prophet is a lot of detail is given to him and you've got to take all those details and you've got to make them fit to what a preterist here will say has to do with uh, you know, false prophets rising up and stuff like. That. And what I mean by false prophets, jo Josephus says, like at the very end, you know, people were climbing up on the top of the temple, thinking that God was going to deliver them, uh, you know, and they didn't obviously get delivered or whatever. So, they there was like people that he describes as false prophets saying, "Hey, we should just go up to the temple and maybe God will deliver us." And that that's kind of the version. There's not a lot of detail going on with those quote unquote false prophets, which seems to offend what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is wanting us to pay attention to these signs that are going to precede his coming. Now, again, if if that's a sign warning to Christians here um, that he's wanting us to know preceding his coming, that false prophet that got him to go on the roof as it was burning is not exactly something that they could do anything about. I mean, the Romans were about to completely destroy them. I mean, that's a whole other issue. It doesn't fit the context to say that for, for two reasons. Number one, the timing of those false prophets has nothing to do with what Jesus' focus here is, as we'll go on to read more about the false prophets. And in, in addition to that, the false prophets that even a preterist will say, okay, well, the false prophet also occurred in 70 AD, that is to say, the false prophet detailed in Revelation 13. He's got a lot of details that have nothing to do with any of those prophets, which we'll look at uh, hopefully a little later. Um... So as long as we're willing to make these prophets extremely general and have nothing to do with the prophets and the, prop, the false prophet, then we can let the predators have this one. Um, but these will lead many astray, in verse 11, these false prophets. And because of lawless, lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This, in the context of what's being talked about here, this great tribulation being put to death, hated by all nations, uh, kingdoms and earthquakes and famines in various places, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is in no way uh, talking about 70 AD. No one who endured to the end of that was saved. Not women, not children, nobody got saved. Even, and, and for Jesus to say, hey, go ahead and endure this to the end, at the 70 AD thing, and my promise is to you that you will be saved. And again, the word saved there, this is well known, I would imagine a preterist would even make this point. Actually, I don't know if they would because it, yeah, well, anyway, the point is that that word there is the deliverer, uh, deliverance word. It's a physical um, 
idea that he'll go on to say in verse 31, he'll like describe the deliverance from that tribulation. That is to say, he will come back and gather them up in what we know as in the midst of that tribulation, they will be taken out. Paul describes that as we're going to look here in a minute. We're going to, we're, when we look at First Thessalonians, and we'll make that abundantly clear. And I'll show you what a death nail that is to preterism as we look at that. But um, so nobody got saved if they waited to the end. So this is a false promise uh, in in no uncertain terms by the Lord. If this is talking about seventy A.D. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, of course, this is a difficult one for the preterist. Um, but a preterist, you know, because, you know, clearly the whole world had not been evangelized by that time, the preterist will say that uh, all the world, the word wor- world here uh, is just talking about the Roman Empire. That is to say that the whole Roman Empire had been evangelized, and then the end will come. So, that is uh, that is one thing, one way to look at that. I certainly don't think there's any grammatical reason or contextual reason or theological reason to think that the evangelization, that the, in fact, I would take a slightly different view to this than most uh, people would anyway. I mean, I think that what's being referred to here is the angel preaching the gospel um, in Revelation, um, but it's inconsequential at the moment. We'll just we'll just say it's very very difficult for the preterists to say that the entire world was evangelized, and they do so by saying, "Oh, he's not talking about world here." I know he said world, but he's actually just talking about Rome. Um. So moving on to verse fourteen, and this gospel of the kingdom. Oh, excuse me, fifteen. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no were nor will ever shall be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Okay, let's let's start there. The This is basically saying that the Great Tribulation, this is where we get the word Great Tribulation. Jesus doesn't say the Great Tribulation here. He, he says a tribulation like no other that has ever been, ever, and will ever be. So this Great Tribulation begins... Uh, at the abomination of desolation, which we'll see uh, occurs at the midpoint of the last period. Uh, it's it's very clear in other places we'll, we'll make, make that note. But the point is, whenever you think it is, the abomination of desolation will be the point where the Great Tribulation starts. And we are told to flee at that point and... This the preterist view has a few different things here, but the primary thing, including I believe R.C. Sproul, believes that this is a reference to the uh, Roman insignia, the Roman eagle, uh, being in the holy of holies, and that uh, that is apparently a a uh, what what's being referred to there. And if that's the case, which I I think makes no sense based on, let's read real real quick. 
Second Thessalonians 2. I think we've gone over this before, but I just wanted to really quickly flip over to Second Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 3. Let no one deceive you. In any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul here takes a pretty literal view of this. He says, let you know, the man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, and so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the language that's always used of the abomination of desolation. A guy sitting in the temple, declaring himself to be God. You know, we're not given a lot of leeway with verses like this. Uh, and even, I would, I would think if we flip back to Matthew 24, and when, in verse 15, when you see the abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place... Let the reader understand. We have, uh, we're told to go back to Daniel, which is, I think, what Paul does, uh, as he does what the Lord asks him to do here, and that's where he gets. As I, I can demonstrate to you that the three instances of Daniel using the term "abomination of desolation" can be, you can get this information that Paul got done saying that he's going to come, he's going to stand in the holy place, he's going to declare himself to be higher than God. All these things can be derived from that. Um, nevertheless, my point is that Jesus says standing in the holy place. Now, none of that stuff, especially what Paul said, happened with, you're going to say, that the Roman eagle was, you know, at the time of the temple's destruction, I mean, everything was smoking, everybody was dead, the Romans come to survey all the damage, they're taking the gold away and doing all that kind of stuff. Nobody left to kill, really. Um, that's when the abomination of desolation happened. Contextually, as I mentioned last time, and I'll try to go through this real quick, it makes no sense to then spend these five, ten, you know, six verses saying, uh, run, you know, um, if you're pregnant or, you know, don't turn back to get your cloak and all these things. Um, makes no good sense to tell people to run uh, because there isn't anybody left to run. The Lord wastes a lot of breath telling people to look for and react to the abomination of desolation. Um, which, of course, makes a lot of sense if the the three-and-a-half-year per persecution that he's talking about here begins at the abomination of desolation, then, of course, this makes perfect sense. Okay, there's the abomination of desolation is the point is the, where this uh, tribulation begins. Three-and-a-half years, in fact, of persecution against Christians will begin at this point then Jesus' admonition to flee at that point is, of course, completely logical. Uh, run, run, don't look back. Because the episode, and the reason this has this sort of focus on Judea here, fleeing to the mountains and so on, is because the epicenter of this uh, event, him sitting in the temple, happens, of course, in Judea. The, the people that react to his order to begin to persecute Christians will will be like shockwaves coming out from the epicenter of that order to kill. Uh, and so it begins in Judea, but it doesn't, it doesn't certainly, uh, it's not limited to Judea. Um, and the flight obviously intends for people to get the heck out of there, go to the mountains. So it's not as if this doesn't happen once you get out of Judea. Um, 
then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever will be. Here again, we have to say, well, Jesus just didn't mean what he said because, you know, this was on the scale of sackings of towns. It was sort of, you know, run of the mill. <clears throat> and in terms of persecutions that the Jews have been through, I mean, you don't even got to go to the Holocaust. You'd go to Stalin and probably get worse than this. I mean, or other people, maybe not Stalin, but, you know, other there have been persecutions of the Jews that have been pretty bad. And much worse than a sacking of the Romans. Um, it, it doesn't matter how bad you could get uh, in terms of killing people with a sword over the course of like a day or two. That's one thing. But when you've got a prolonged concentration camp of continued torture and experiments and ridiculous killings of... I mean, how is that even comparable to, to, to this? Um, it's certainly not the worst persecution that has ever happened and the and I'm here giving the idea that this is just to do with the Jews even though that's completely not what it's talking about here this is talking about Christians these people are being killed for Jesus's namesake we're right back to that earlier verse this great persecution is is for believers in Jesus Christ now that that's an unambiguous thing that he says here not and so even though I'm giving you uh, uh, the kind of preterist, pre-tribulationalist uh, tip of the hat here, okay, this is just a persecution of the Jews. It's not even the worst persecution of the Jews. But it's certainly not the worst persecution of Christians because there were no Christians persecuted in 70 AD. So it's completely nonsensical if you take this at its face value that this is a persecution of those who hold to the name of Christ. That is unambiguously why they are being killed here, because of Jesus Christ. Nobody in 70 AD got killed uh, because of that. So it's 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 super falling apart if that's if you hold to what's being said. And then he goes on uh, to 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 say, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This persecution will be cut short in the sense of uh, in two senses but particularly as we're going to see the rapture itself the they are let's actually go to the other time in the Bible that this word the great tribulation is used there's only two actually there's only one time where the where the term the great tribulation is is referred to okay um, and that's in Revelation chapter 7. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 7. The reason that John calls it here the Great Tribulation, ha megastelipsis, that is the Great Tribulation, is because he is referring back to what Jesus said about this tribulation being unlike anything unparalleled in history, unparalleled in the future. It is the Great Tribulation. This is uh, where, um, in, again, we're, we're talking about that somehow or another this is cut short these people are going to be delivered from the midst of this tribulation um, and let's read at verse 7 13 uh, there's this huge multitude around the throne okay well let's read at uh, verse 9 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and, and from where did, have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That's the word, the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Um, and so these guys came out of the great tribulation. So we have this great group of believers in Christ, that came out of the midst of this great tribulation, referring back to the, the thing that Jesus is talking about. These people are not the uh, people in 70 AD. These are not people that survived 70 AD, nor the people that were killed in 70 AD. These are people that came out of the great tribulation, were delivered from the midst of it. Uh, and we can develop that in other verses, as we hope to do here if we have time. But uh, it, it's basically clear from what we were seeing right in front of us, but I'm not going to ask you to, to believe that at the moment. Um, okay, moving back to Matthew 24. Let's go with verse, verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arrive and perform great signs and wonders, so that they lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now here, we definitely have no cause to say that, that anything like this happened in 70 AD. As we already mentioned, there were no false Christs that we know of, uh, nobody claiming to be a Messiah, certainly nobody that had any false wonders that were done. Uh, the even if the false prophets were in view here, the one that I mentioned that took them to the temple, top of the temple, there were no great wonders that happened. There is no sign that they did. And even if they did, again, the, the focus here is that these signs are going to deceive a ton of people. People are going to be dramatically deceived by these false Christs and, and prophets, even so much as the entire world is going to be deceived. Of course, the, the, when you look at the book of Revelation, this is abundantly clear. This is a world thing. These guys are going to succeed, not just at the final minutes of the destruction of a city. These guys are going to succeed in getting people to believe that they're a false messiah and a false prophet. They're going to do so with great signs and wonders. The whole world is going to marvel at them. You know, These are things that that you have to say, ah, you know, the Bible messes up a little bit, and sometimes it says things like the whole world's going to do that, but really it's not. And, you know, you, we've got to, you're chipping away slowly at, at what what the Bible is. The Bible is, you know, very fallible. It's, uh, it says things it doesn't mean. It, it it's, it's kind of, I don't want to go into that too much, but I'll continue. <laughs> um, see that I've told you beforehand, so if you say, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner room, rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the, from the east and shines as far to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay, this is interesting because verse 27 about the lightning coming from the east and shining to the west, so will the, son of the coming of the Son of Man be. The preterists will say that this has to do with the coming of the Son of Man being quick. 
That is, the destruction of Jerusalem was a quick thing, lightning is quick, and so there you go. But this is actually an extremely big um, problem for the preterists if they interpret it in light of the context. What this is referring to is the lightning being very visible. This is something that is quite known about uh, when lightning goes from the east to the west of the sky, you will know that it happened. And one of the ways that I can be sure that that's what the intent here is, is because of the, the first, the verse right before it, where it says, they're going to say, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in their inner rooms, don't believe it. For, okay, why should you not believe it if they say that he's in the wilderness or in the inner rooms? That, look, the, son, the company of Christ has come, he's in the wilderness, let's go out there. Or he's in the inner rooms. Again, this is the context of the false messiahs and, and, and everything else that he's saying will happen. He says, don't believe it because, for, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. He's saying, when the Son of Man comes, you are going to know it. This is not going to be anything that anybody's going to have anything questions about. And that's a huge problem here for the Preterist because the Preterist is saying that what he's talking about here, the coming of the Son of Man, is something that, that Jesus came back in this in 70 AD. In that sense, he came, he came, he came back. This what he's talking about here, the lightning coming from the don't believe it, he's over there. The Jesus came back and everybody missed it. And what one of the reasons I have such a hard time with this is because not only later on when he describes what he's saying, you know, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, power and great glory. But the tribes of the earth will mourn at the sign of the Son of Man. This is parallel to every time you see this. Okay, this when, when this, he's about to say what what it's going to really look like when he shows up. He's going to give some detailed things and these things that are going to happen when he shows up. The tribes of the earth will mourn because they know. Okay, he has shown up now. There is no ambiguity. The rapture is more than just a taking up of people. The rapture happens because gets a, gets people out of the way because the wrath is coming now. Okay, everybody, move out of the way. I am about to really do some damage here. Uh, and that's why people are mourning. His coming is both a rescue of the righteous and a beginning of the destruction of the wicked prophesied by every prophet since the beginning the so-called day of the Lord. And you can actually see in Revelation 6 these tribes of the earth mourning about this coming, the parousia, Revelation 6. Uh, let's start in 612. When he opened up the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth and the, uh, the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the earth fell to the sky and the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken like a gale. Da, 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 da. The king, then the kings of the earth and the great ones, great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, falling on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Could this go in any more detail to say this is a worldwide recognition of the coming of, uh, of the king? Uh, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, they all hid themselves and said, Fallen us, hide us from the face of him, for the great day of the wrath has come. The the sign that is going to happen preceding the rapture and, or, or, and preceding the day of the Lord, which happened on the same day, they are the same thing. The rapture happens and then the, the wrath of God begins. Uh, that's why the rapture happens. It is an unambiguous sign when it happens. There is no way to take this any other way. And the, the Lord, back in our verse in Matthew 24, 
spends two verses refuting anybody saying that this his parousia will be something that is so insignificant that uh, that you could just say, oh, go out in the desert. Oh, he's out in the desert. Oh, he's there. He came back then, and I would submit, oh, he came in 70 AD. You just didn't see it. Um, that's a, a, ref, a refutation of that idea. Um, and then he says this, I think, to sort of say, you know, see, I've told you beforehand, to kind of be like, look, I'm telling you this stuff. Don't believe anything else. I'm tell- see that I have told you beforehand. Take that for something. That must mean something, right? Uh, anyway, um, let's move on to some of the, the verses that are difficult here. Verse 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Uh, Okay, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, let's just deal with the preterist ideas first here. This is the idea that they'll say, well, the sun and the moon darkened, and this idea of stars falling from heaven, they'll focus on the stars falling from heaven because they'll say this is apocalyptic language. Uh, they'll say, there, you know, we know that the stars didn't fall from heaven and they aren't going to fall from heaven. And they'll quote a few places where this idea is said in other, in other terms. That is to say that, that the sun was said to be darkened in another place in history according to the Bible. And they would say, because it was said before, that it really is just a way that the Bible speaks. It doesn't actually happen. That's what they're, they're trying to say. This stuff doesn't happen. It's just language that says that it's bad. Things are going to get real bad. So bad, in fact, that the, the, the stars, you know, it, it's just language to, to make you think things are bad are happening, but those, these things will not happen. But they're, all their proof texts for that don't mean that those things aren't going to happen. For example, they'll say that this was said to happen in Babylon and, you know, before the destruction of Babylon, which I'll say, as we're going to look at here, is extremely important. Um, But just because it said it was going to happen in Babylon didn't mean it didn't happen in Babylon. I mean, you know, I mean, just because it was said to happen then doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. But when we actually look at this specific event... The, what is known theologically as the sun, moon, and star sign, we can actually know a great deal about it. And I think that I'll focus in on one of the things that a preterist will say, it p- focuses in on most of the time, it, which is the stars falling from heaven. Okay, so what you need to realize about this is that this is an event that was always supposed to, in every prophecy of the day, day of the Lord, was supposed to precede the, the wrath of God, the great and terrible day of the Lord. So let's go to Joel, the book of Joel chapter 2. <coughs> the book of Joel chapter 2. You can pause it if you need to. Okay, so he starts off here in Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. And by the way, this trumpet is the trumpet that's being talked about as we're going to the, the trumpet that Jesus just got done talking about. He's talking about this trumpet. Not, I know a lot of people say Rosh Hashanah and all this stuff. And if, if you want to, I did, I did a podcast about the, the day of the Lord trumpet. 
is a reference not to the ram's horns of the Rosh Hashanah, which, by the way, Rosh Hashanah isn't even in the Bible. But nevertheless, um, he's talking about the silver trumpets of Numbers 10. These were to call an assembly and to begin and sound an alarm. That is, it calls everybody together, which is, of course, got rapture language, but it's also to do the other thing the day of the Lord does. You call them together with one blow, and you be, and you gather them together for battle, or you announce the beginning of a battle for the second blow of the silver trumpets. And so the the trumpet blasting became a Old Testament symbol for the beginning of the day of the Lord, the wrath of God. Okay, So when Paul says, at the trumpet sound, we're going to be gathered together, and when Jesus says that the gathering together is going to be related to a trumpet sound, it is, it's re- reference to the day of the Lord. The rapture and the day of the Lord are back-to-back events. You, you, and, and I can, again, Matthew, the rapture puzzle solved with Matthew 24. Watch it if you have some time. I'm speaking much more eloquently than I am now uh, and about that issue if you are concerned. Joel 2. Verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm. By the way, the blowing the trumpet and sounding an alarm, those are the two things in Numbers 10 that you would do if you were going to call together the assembly and uh, and begin a, a battle. So it's really pristine language if you're going to uh, attribute this to the rapture and then the beginning of the Lord's wrath. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains of great powerful people, like never been before, nor will ever be again, and them through the, the through all the years of the generations. Here you can kind of see Jesus' obvious reference to the day of the Lord. This is an unprecedented time. It won't. It's like never before or will ever be again. You can see that in Joel 2, too. But I want to point you to a specific verse, and let me find it here. Yes, uh, jump down to verse 10, Joel 2, verse 10. Uh, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Okay, so here we're not told that the stars fall to heaven. Uh, we're told a literal thing will happen. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Joel here, is, this is an interesting chapter, because here we find that uh, Joel gives us you know, in Revelation, we see the same thing. I think we read that, you know, again, the sun, moon, and star sign preceding the day of the Lord. There it said it would be like blood or like sackcloth, okay? And we're, we're, we're told there it would be like blood and like sackcloth. This is not something you can do away with and say, oh, it's just talking about poems, you know? It's, just, just, it's not actually going to get dark. It's just saying that, you know, it's going to be real bad before 70 AD. But but he says, like blood, like sackcloth, it's not going to become blood or become sackcloth. It's going to be as if it was blood and as if it was sackcloth. And Joel here gives us not just the what's really going to happen, the sun and the moon are darkened and they're going to withdraw their shining, but Joel also uses the term, uh, he goes on just in case there was any doubt about this, he uses the term for uh, the the blood symbolism as well. So, for example, jump down to verse 31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay? the day of the day Before the day of the Lord comes, you're going to see it turn to blood. Okay? Uh, and, and we know from Joel talking about the day of the Lord and the sun, moon, and star signs earlier in verse 10 that what he means by that is it's going to diminish its light. So this is a very important chapter to show that just because things like it says the stars will fall from heaven doesn't mean this, that nothing's going to happen as the preterist would have you believe. It's like, oh, we can just 
totally forget about that stuff because it didn't happen in 70 AD, so we must assume that it's not going to happen. But it, it is going to happen, and it's just because it's talking about becoming like blood or like sackcloth, it's talking about a diminishing of light. This is an extremely important uh, sign that if it doesn't happen, if this is really not supposed to happen, I, again, what preterism does, what the price you pay for preterism is that your Bible becomes really more and more worthless uh, as you read, especially through the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, prophetic passages. It's like, you know, this thing hardly gets a thing right. Um, and it certainly encourages me to believe certain things, so it's, it's deceiving me in a lot of ways. And that's, again, my high horse. I don't want to uh, get on it too much. So moving on to, Ma back to Matthew 24. Okay, let's look at verse 30 where it says, you know, all the, the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. This is interesting. The preterist view of this is basically that, um, well, basically it doesn't happen. Um, they'll point to like Isaiah 19 verse 1 where it says, Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians. Okay, it goes on to say this. Uh, and so the idea that R.C. Sproul puts forward is that this idea of, of uh, the coming, uh, riding a swift cloud is is symbolic of judgment. So all that, that Jesus is saying in, in the, these verses is that it's a symbolic way of him saying that he will come and judge uh, uh, Israel and that it will be his coming. Now, there's a significant issue with this. We, first of all, the context, Jesus isn't saying this in the same way that that Isaiah verse is saying it. You know, there is... It's kind of like we talked about earlier. If the Bible says something like, "I'm going to," you know, "you're going to ride like wings of eagles" or something like that, it's it's obvious. Like if you're reading that, you don't have to be a genius to be like, "Okay, I'm not expecting to be on the eagle's wings or anything." Um, there's this giant eagle or something somewhere in heaven. No, it makes it clear from the context that that's using poetic imagery. However, Jesus doesn't, for one minute, give us that idea here in these verses, that that's what he's meaning. In fact, he goes into exquisite detail that is like a play-by-play. -play. You know, you've got the sign, <coughs> you've got the tribes of the earth mourning, you, they're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory, that, that as we've seen, is something that he's serious about. He, he makes a big point about, they're going to see it. And he was going to send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they're going to gather, another event that's going to happen, a gathering of the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So this is all real specific. That's one, one area that I have a problem with, is to say this none of this stuff, these two verses, very important verses, are not going to happen whatsoever. because Just because you can point to Isaiah 19 and say that a cloud, he, he once referred to as, as riding on a cloud, which, by the way, is, is, is a real thing. Um, uh, you can go to Daniel 7, the idea of a cloud rider. In fact, maybe we should go to Daniel 7 right now uh, to, to see it. But... But uh, nevertheless, w w my point is that we can go. I think the best way to do this is to go to First Thessalonians four. The reason why this is important is because R.C. Sproul and most partial preterists here 
recognize that this is a yet future event. And I would say because it's so impossible to get around this verse. I mean, it's just language. Paul doesn't even sort of give you an option here. You got to believe this, or you're, you know, you're kind of heretical. I mean, because it's just so obvious. You can't, you can't allegorize your way out of First Thessalonians four fifteen and so, or uh, uh, or the rapture verses in First Thessalonians four. So he says that this is going to happen. He doesn't call it a rapture. He calls it the resurrection. He's sort of ambiguous about when that's going to happen and everything. But basically, he believes that this is future. Now, here's the problem. Let's read it. First Thessalonians 4, starting in verse uh, 15. Now, starting 14. Now, starting 13. But if not 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Though, uh, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming parousia of the Lord, so this is supposed to parousia, in other contexts they say must mean 70 AD, but here R.C. Sproul says, okay, well this one is talking about the future coming of the Lord, which again, is very, very difficult to pick and choose like that, but he says, until the parousia of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't stop there at the end of the verse. A lot of people do. Let's or at the end of the chapter. Let's read on to ver, uh, chapter five because it's no, it's an, not supposed to be a break. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need that I have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Okay, what he just got done speaking of, which is what we the clearest rapture passage in the world, which I don't think I have to explain to you is exactly the same thing that we read in Matthew chapter uh, 24, 30 and 31. Uh, the angels, the trumpets, the gathering, the, he's in the clouds gathering together. Uh, he now calls the day of the Lord. For you, I don't have to tell you the time and season, brothers, because you have no, you don't need me to tell you when this is going to happen. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Again, he's talking about the same thing in Matthew 24. He's got labor pains here. Uh, uh, you know the, w what Jesus said with birth pangs. But you are not in darkness, brothers, that that day should surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not in the night or the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who are asleep, sleep in the night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope and salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So his encouragement to these people who are suffering persecution is that they would be delivered from that persecution before the day of the Lord, which is the wrath of God. Verse uh, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, and he knows this is the day of the Lord. Verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night. And all we have to do is go back to that, un that chapter break, unfortunately, Starting in 15, we know this is 
the rapture. For we declare to you with the word of the Lord, the coming of the Lord not precede those who have fallen asleep. The angels and the trumpets and the exactly the same thing that we read. Here's the issue with this. There is a perfect harmony without a single contradiction. It's this beautiful, unbelievable, cool, awesome word of God that every person who ever uttered a word in this book connects seamlessly to another thing that's said. It's this perfect symphony of the Bible. Um, but, you know, no preterist could believe that what we just read has anything to do with what we read over there in Matthew 24. And I would submit that, unfortunately, a pre-tribulationalist can't see that either. Um, because Matthew 24, if they believed that, they would also have to believe that the Christians would have to go through persecution. That's why they make this sort of ridiculous idea of making Matthew 24 the only chapter in the Bible for the Jews. That is to say, oh, this is just for the Jews, because if it's not for the Jews, uh, even though it says it's for people being persecuted for Jesus' namesake, anyway, there's a, they've got their own problems for saying Matthew 24 is just for the Jews, and we don't have to pay attention to it. And this is one of the things that convinces almost every pre-tribulationalist that, hey, maybe I've been hoodwinked here. <coughs> Because Paul is clearly talking about Matthew 24 in 1 Thessalonians 4.15 and following and into verse five, into chapter 5. But the problem here is, of course, once you can see that, if, if you can honestly look at 1 Thessalonians 4.15 and following and Matthew 24 uh, verses 30, 31 or 29 through 31 or whatever and say, I don't see it. I don't see any connection there. If you can do that, but if you can, if you have to say, I have a real hard time saying that those that's talking about different events, or that's not that that if you if you can if you can't if you can see that there is a connection there, then preterism can't work, uh, neither can pre-tribulationalism by that by that same token. But it's one of the most obvious things on the planet, and the reason people can't see it is because they have hardcore theologies that they're wanting to be true, and both of them are the same thing, mind you. Uh, preterism and pre-tribulationalism can't see that for the same reason. That is, they really, 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 really don't want there to be persecution in the future. And so pre they take different angles. Preterism just says, oh, you know, let's let's pretend none of that, all that stuff happened in 70 AD, therefore we don't have to get scared about anything in the future. And pre-tribulationalists are the same thing. They want to just not, they want to get, don't want to deal with the persecution, so they say, came up with this whole thing to deal with it. But Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians uh, uh, are one of the ways that you can demonstrate to both of those groups that, look, this is obviously something's wrong here. Okay, so I think we're about to wrap up on Matthew 24 here. But before I do that, I want to talk about the macro idea, uh, how 70 AD can play a role in this, and talk a little bit about the distinction between Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And uh, so let's just get started with that. Okay, so Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2 and three are really important, and this is what really a lot of the controversy is about. Uh, reading from verse one, it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. This is unambiguously a prophecy of the destruction of 70 AD. It is there is no way to look at this any other way. You can't say this is talking about another temple. Jesus points at the temple and says, look, one stone left here upon another. I mean, this is talking about 
the 70 AD destruction. One interesting proof text for this is in the study of Daniel 9 that I've been doing, that this is essentially kind of like, uh, this is the, I know a lot of people say it's the triumphal entry or whatever, but the 483 year you know period and all this stuff that you can show is actually, a, he's basically quoting Daniel here about how nothing shall be left of the temple uh, as, as sort of a prophecy uh, or sort of reiteration of a prophecy. I mean, if you, he's basically saying what Daniel said about the, in other words, Daniel prophesied in, among other things, about the destruction of, this, of the temple in 70 AD. Basically, Daniel 9 is the, the a prophecy of three temples and three temples' destructions. If I, I might even title my, my study of Daniel 9, The Story of Three Temples. And this one happens to be the second one that he's talked about. And, um, and he describes it, Daniel, that is, describes it in that prophecy as nothing will be left of it. So, this is a prophecy, in a sense, or a reiteration of a prophecy about that second part of Daniel. Um, now, that's what he says about that. Jesus pretty much leaves it at that. I mean, everybody must have been walking around. He says that. It apparently keeps on walking because, verse 3 says, Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately, so they've been chewing this over a little bit. That's how. What what else can you take about that from from that? They've been. He said it. They've been thinking about it. Saying, "Tell us when will these things be?" Now, if they had stopped there, then I would say that the rest of this must be about the destruction of seventy A.D. If they said, "Tell us when will these things be?" referring to what he just said in verse two, which is clearly the seventy A.D. Then, then, then preterism wins, end of story. But he, they don't stop there. They say, and what will be the sign of your parousia and the end of the age? He's, they're asking essentially three questions here. And the problem is that we know at least two of them are based on their uh, mis in, I mean, contextually obviously misinformed. I mean, you don't have to read the Gospels to recognize that the disciples, even to the very last day, the day they watched him ascend into heaven, said, um, "Are you now going to, you know, go ahead and kill the Romans and everything?" I mean, they really, really didn't understand until Pentecost. Really, I mean, it's certainly the last day they saw him, they were still asking, "Okay, so you're going to do the, the whole kingdom thing right now, right?" So, when they chewed on this for a while about Jesus pointing to the temple and and and, and mentioning what Daniel had said, they. They basically interpret that as, okay, that's the end of the age. The destruction of Herod's temple must be, I mean, they're still viewing this as Jesus is about to conclude. When they say end of the age, despite what the preterists say, uh, they're viewing that as the the beginning of the what, the messianic age. I mean, the, the, the age where Messiah rules with a rod of iron and Isaiah 65 and Ezekiel uh, 38 and, and, and the rest of them come true. Something that I do believe does come true. They're unconditional promises, as a matter of fact. But nevertheless, uh, my high horses aside, uh, I think we can be sure that that's what they're saying as well. Jesus basically answers their question uh, about this, uh, about their, the sign of his coming at the end of the age. That much is clear, because that's what he does. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us when those things will be, because he, he basically says, I don't know when those things will be. 
But he does tell them what the signs of their coming is, and the end of the age could essentially be the same question. That, that is to say, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So one question about the parousia and end of the age, which they understood to be the same thing. So you could say it's two questions. But the first question, that is, when these things will be, never does get answered. He tells them he doesn't know when those things will be, as a matter of fact. But in any case, what I want to try to say here is, is I don't want you to feel like that's, you know, you have to understand that. Um, what I think that is happening here is Jesus then begins to describe something that is true 100% for the future. That is, all the prophecies of, of the actual event is 100% true. You don't have to... You don't have to make excuses for his whole thing about you know a ra you know a rapture happening or you know all these things and we did in the verse by verse. You don't have to make any excuses for the guy. I mean, he really is going to do the things he says, bar bar nothing. He's going to do them all. But it's also semi true for 70 A.D., but only in the sense that, as I mentioned, Daniel is about three temples and three destructions of those temples. So. There's a lot of confusion between Matthew 24 and Luke 21. A preterist will always prefer to, to tell you the all of a discourse from Luke 21, and a, a, a futurist would always prefer to tell you from Matthew 24, though, though they're the same thing. But let me show you why a preterist would prefer Luke 21, and I'll use that to show you that it is even those verses that they use are uh, j just... The reason that they seem to they think they make sense more to them is because they are uh, uninformed about what is supposed to happen in the future. Okay, so let's start in verse twenty, Luke twenty-one, verse twenty. This is where why uh, a preterist would prefer this chapter over uh, basically the exact same thing. And let me ans answer the question real quick. Okay, why is Matthew twenty-four and Luke twenty-one saying different things? Are we to understand? that Jesus said a different thing here? Well, no. Um, it's probably more likely that he said both things. Um, and, you know, I mean, some most of the stuff that we're going to read in Luke 21 is an addition to, not not a revision of. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he, he's, these are phrases that we don't get in Matthew 24. Matthew doesn't report, but are reported here in Luke. Um, so they're omissions rather than revisions, uh, which is... Very. I mean, the reason we have four Gospels is because of those kinds of things. Uh, for example, Matthew and Luke both, at times, take things that are. Matthew certainly uh, takes a lot of things and, and organizes them by, um, how to say, by uh, category. Luke does the same thing. Like he sometimes he, you can get that he's talking about things chronologically, but other times he's just grouping things that Jesus says. Uh, that all have to do with a certain kind of subject and puts them all in the same chapter, even though they're not chronologically. Uh, Jesus didn't say that those things at the same time, and you can actually using the four gospels, you can actually piece it together when it chronologically happened and all that stuff. So that's the reason why we have four gospels. They don't make any right or wrong. It's just they are sometimes uh, you know, that you understand that. So, anyway, here's the, the verses. But when you see Jerusalem, verse 20, surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let those who are in the country not in, in the country enter, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things 
which are written may be fulfilled. Okay, so there, I mean, basically, there we get more information about this here. That is to say that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. Uh, that doesn't say that in Matthew 24. It doesn't mention Jerusalem being surrounded by armies in Matthew 24. So you can see right off the bat why this would make uh, a preterist be like, oh, wow, this is definitely it. Now we know for sure. But really, it's not knowing for sure. Uh, all, that, all that it says here is that Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies before the desolation happens. So let's, let's we're going to keep a finger here in Luke 21 or keep a, a some kind of placeholder, and we're going to move to Daniel uh, chapter 11, the, the last two verses of Daniel chapter 11. You can pause it if you need to. But um, really, the last six or so uh, verses in Daniel 11 talk about the Antichrist and these events that we'll talk about later. Uh, you, you put forth uh, that, that article about Julius Caesar, we'll talk about it in a minute. But these are wars and things that obviously haven't happened yet. Even that article you sent clearly understands that Antiochus can't fit that, because and that's why they propose Julius Caesar is uh, the same reason that people propose the Antichrist, is because Antiochus didn't do those things. And I would submit Julius Caesar didn't even come close to doing them, but uh, we'll, we'll hit that when we get there. So, But here are a bunch of wars and conquests and things like that. Armies everywhere in the Middle East led by the Antichrist. Okay, That's basically what you can get from this. Even if you don't think it's the Antichrist, some dude walking around with a bunch of armies completely destroying Libya, Ethiopia, Egypt, and everybody around, Edom, Moab, Ammon, everything around Israel. And then the last verse, verse 45, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one who will help him. Okay? So he's planting his palace. Okay, so in context, here's a dude is completely unchallenged, annihilating everybody he comes into contact with. Revelation 13, uh, you know, this is a guy, who can make war with this guy? He's doing really good war-wise. War and then last we get from him, 45, he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So we can, whether or not the planting of his tents of his palace in the seas and the glorious holy mountain is a reference to Jerusalem, uh, I suppose you can make a case like just outside Jerusalem, but it's definitely, it's in Jerusalem. Um, but the point is, is that uh, there are a bunch of armies now in and around Jerusalem, okay, because the Antichrist just showed up. Now, back in our verse in Luke 21, it says, when you see armies surrounding Israel, you know that its desolation is near. Okay, well we know that this is just before the so-called abomination of desolation. In Daniel 12, if you then read the next the next verse, okay, so basically, you've got the Antichrist in Jerusalem with a bunch of armies. Next verse, Daniel 12, 11. At that time, which time? At the time where the Antichrist sits his palace and everything in Jerusalem. At that time, Michael will stand up, the great prince who stands watch over you, the sons of your people. It should be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time, and a time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust, shall the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. It goes on to, uh, you know, to talk like this. Um, where is the verse I'm looking for here? Um, verse 11, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there should be 1,290 days. Okay, so this is kind of a 
interesting thing here because this verse 12 and verse or excuse me verse 11 talking about from the time the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up so it's referencing you back to Daniel 11 and the abomination of desolation in that chapter so it's it, it, it's putting the abomination of desolation uh, in the context of the time of trouble and the resurrection I don't want to get too much into detail right now it's not that big of a deal I mean it's a big deal in refuting preterism but it's not in the point I'm trying to make right now um, which is simply that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies but before I get into this I need to I know I'm all over the place but if, just bear with me for a minute if we're going to go to Daniel 9 and I want to show you to a degree that um, Daniel 9 is talking about three temples and their destructions because if you can get this uh, this, this so-called why there's a gap in Daniel 9 which by the way has nothing to do with dispensationalism you can throw away Daniel 9 and you've got dispensationalism everywhere but this is just one of many places where you can find this, uh, this, uh, this taught. But uh, what I want to do here is show you that, this is, that three temples are being in view. Daniel 9. Daniel 9, verse 24, is where the so-called 70 weeks prophecy begins. Um, and uh, I have a completely different view of this than a lot of people. But I, what I'm not, I'm not going to try to sell you my view here. Uh, I'm just going to try to show you that my view aside you can still determine that three temples are being referred to here and at least I know the preterist view believes that this is all about Jesus but I at least hope you can see that there's an issue with that in some places 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression da -da 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 -da. Um, no everyone understand that from okay so, know, verse 25, Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Okay, so this is Daniel in Babylon. Currently in Jerusalem, there is no temple. Daniel prays still three times a day facing the temple, but there's no temple towards the direction that he's facing. Daniel's prayer previously is, Oh Lord, please, 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 let us build the temple again. The destruction of the temple that Daniel is quite aware of in the first part of Daniel, Daniel is praying a prayer that was required for him to pray uh, as per Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is the description of what would happen if they broke the covenant. Uh, it would make the temple desolate. Uh, it's also a fulfillment of the prophecy given uh, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles regarding uh, uh, the desolation of the temple that would happen uh, that, that God gave to Solomon upon the building of the first temple saying that if you, uh, if you don't at, at the dedication of that first temple God told Solomon that if they don't uh, follow these certain conditions that he would destroy the temple and that is what happened before Daniel makes his prophecy so they've already had a, a temple Solomon's temple it's been destroyed. Daniel again prays, okay, Lord, Leviticus 26 says, if that ever happens, we've got an out. We can pray this prayer of, that Leviticus 26 prescribes, and you would be gracious to, to, to redo this thing. So another temple then is now being told, no matter which way you kind of look at this, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and everything there in Daniel 25, 
it shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. I don't really think even a preterist or anybody would say that has anything to do except for, hey, there is a, going to be a rebuilt temple. Okay, so what we have so far is the, the prophecy of a rebuilding of one temple. So far, Daniel 70 weeks prophecy, you could take, take or leave the Messiah stuff, and, and I'll get to that when I do my study or whatever, but we can at least say one temple has been prophesied to be rebuilt in Daniel 25. Now, Daniel 26 says, And after 62 weeks the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and people of the prince uh, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So, no matter which way you look at it, the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with the flood, and the end of the war, desolations are determined. Um, this is talking about the destruction of a temple. So now we've got prophecy of a building of a temple in verse 25. We've got the prophecy of a destruction of a temple in verse 26. Okay, so you could say Daniel 9 is about a lot of things, but so far it's about prophecy of a building of one and a prophecy of destruction of that same temple. Herod's temple, or I guess you could call it the second temple, that is to say the one that uh, was built by Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, verse 27, we end verse 26 with a destroyed city and sanctuary. 70 AD, you know, Mark Twain described Israel like the, the the landscape of the moon, okay, when he visited it. It's just, it was destroyed, and it had been destroyed for a, a millennia or more uh, after 70 AD, right? So, it really was destroyed. 926 came true. But the problem is, Daniel 927 then starts off with, as he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall one, shall one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So if in Daniel 9.26 the temple was destroyed, clearly, there seems to be a temple rebuilt uh, in Daniel 9.27 because this he is bringing an end to sacrifice and offering on the wing of abominations. Now this is something that I think Paul and Jesus really got, this, this phrase, and on the wing of abominations. Do you have any idea what that phrase could mean? And if you say no, you're not alone. The idea, on the wing of abominations. On the wing of abominations. If you don't know, don't feel bad. The reason that this is translated in the NKJV here, the wing, is because the word there is the word wing. But you can kind of see that doesn't make any sense. And on the wing of abominations, what does that mean? That on, there's abomination bird and on the wing of it. I always, when I read that before, I was just assumed it was like, I don't know, like uh, abominations will come and like, you know, coming along with abominations, there will be uh, desolations. But um, it's interesting to note that the Septuagint and others translate this word wing as temple. And um, there's a good reason. In fact, most commentators, you know, in new versions and stuff like that, essentially translate this as a wing of a temple. Um, that is to say, on the wing or in some part of the temple, there will be an abomination that is set up. And I mention that um, not as the only sole case for the idea that Daniel 9.27 here is referring to the temple, because I think that you also have the removal of the sacrifice and offering to be another telltale sign that we now have a destruction of a third temple in view here. Because in, this is essentially saying we're 
we're going to, you know, we've just destroyed the temple in 926, and now we've got one again because this he guy, this ruler, comes and destroys uh, destroys it again. So we've now got a third temple going through the same cycle as the first two. Um, the the before we go into that, I want to show you something about this because the preterist view here is that this is talking about the Messiah, and uh, so their their interpretation would be that he confirm confirms the covenant for many with one week, but in the middle of the week he will bring it in to sacrifice an offering. Now already we've got some problems with this. Of course, they're saying this is Jesus and that uh, he he makes a covenant with one for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring it in to sacrifice an offering. This is hard because you've got to say that the covenant that Jesus makes is very temporary, and uh, it seems that in the middle of the week he's going to bring it into sacrifice and offering. I know they would say that's the atonement death on the cross. And even if I was able to let the week and one week slide, and the reason why it's difficult to do that is because obviously, I mean, intercontextually here, we know that this is, in I don't think a, a preterist or anybody else would disagree, this is talking about a three and a half year period. That is, in the middle of a three and a half year period, if you've got one week of sevens, I mean, week basically means, it's like a word like dozen, here it's, but it's sevens instead of dozen. So in the middle of a seven, that is a three and a half year period, this, this end of sacrifice and offering is going to take place, that's going to be, in, and it's going to be put on this, on the temple as an abomination. That is really hard to to think has to do with Jesus, but let, let's let's do something here to, to show that this idea of bringing it into sacrifice and offering in the middle of the week is extremely difficult to believe has to do with Jesus' atoning death on the cross. Okay, and we're just going to stay in Daniel. Daniel mentions the abomination of desolation three times, and so let's first turn to Daniel 11, and we're going to go to verse uh, 31 okay Daniel 11 30, 31 this is probably talking about uh, for sure it's talking about Antiochus but in this case I think it is a uh, also a reference to the future uh, this is a one of the abominations that Jesus refers to as being yet future and forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary uh, fortresses and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Surely you can see some parallels there. Here we have a defiling, the sanctuary is defiled. That's why they take away the sacrifices, because the sanctuary has been defiled. No way are we willing theologically to say that this can have parallel to Daniel 9 being Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't defile the sanctuary. And he didn't take away the daily sacrifices and place there an abomination of any sort. Okay, no abomination got put in the temple when Jesus. You know what I'm saying? That this is this is not what Daniel is describing back in, in Daniel nine. He's not talking about an atoning death. He's talking about, in this case, at least Antiochus Epiphanes putting a pig in the altar, which which, you know, and, and putting a, a, a statue to Zeus there. Okay, so. So we're not dealing with an atoning death, at least even in a prefiguration. Even if you wanted to kind of believe that Daniel 9 was talking about the atoning death of Christ, you would want to se separate this as far away from this idea as you possibly could. But let's, let's move on to the next one, Daniel 12. I think this is a deal breaker. Daniel 12, verse 11. And from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, now 
if we if this has anything to do with Daniel nine, then those daily sacrifices being taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up again. You've got the reference there, the same thing that happens in Daniel nine. You've got a, a setting up of an abomination on a wing of, and I would say the Septuagint and many other people uh, agree that's a temple. There shall be one thousand two hundred ninety days, and again you've got the reference to this three and a half year period. So you've got three things that are parallel in all three of these references. You've got a daily sacrifice taken away, you've got an abomination of desolation set up, and you've got a three and a half year period. Let's move back to Daniel 9, uh, that last verse. It says, uh, verse 27, you shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Uh, and we can see that happening, by the way, in, with Antiochus prefiguring it, and uh, I would say also in, in, the, in, in the New Testament, but nevertheless, in reference to the Antichrist, but for our purposes, let's move on. But in the middle of the week, so we've got a reference to the three and a half year period, he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one desol made desolate. And even if you don't want to believe that the wing of abominations has something to do with the temple, uh, that is to say he sets up an abomination on the wing um, of the temple, which is not, I'll grant you, very clear from that text, but I'll, I'll also suggest that you look into that if you're really interested to see what the grammatical reason for people believing that that is true uh, is. But even if you just took that aside and didn't believe that this abomination was being set up in the temple, you, you, you have to reference the three and a half year period and the removal of the sacrifice and offering and the words abomination and desolation being in here as being a little more than coincidental that this is such a huge part of Daniel and in every case Daniel mentions it, it is about the Antichrist. How dangerous is that to say that this verse is about Jesus and it's about the Antichrist. And every, you know, the early church and everybody always thought this was about the Antichrist. There's no way to look at this as a good thing in context, but yet the preterist view is that we have to believe this is Jesus? And, and anyways, that clearly what's going on here is something bad. And, uh, in, and let's move to 2 Thessalonians 2 and we'll, we'll wrap this part of it up. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, when Paul seems to get this as well, because he seems to suggest uh, in verse 4, let's read from 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, Paul, again, is is basically taking this whole thing from Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, but um, the point is, he, he interprets Daniel here, the abomination of desolation, as somebody sitting in the temple, okay, that he interprets that wing there as a temple, and he certainly interprets the other ones uh, as that as well. So what, I guess what I'm try, trying to tell you here is that Paul views what Daniel was talking about and what Jesus said was yet future as being... Um, uh, in, in the temple. So all that to say, all that to say that Daniel nine must be referring to another event. That is to say, another temple being destroyed, a third temple. And I think before I leave it um, with Daniel nine, I'll say one more thing about this. Let me put this edit in here. I'm going to take out about 15 minutes of the, me talking about this particular point that really, uh, in retrospect, is not all that important to go into the details of it. Basically, I was just talking about something I talked about in Daniel 9 and how the he 
there uh, is referring to the people and the grammatical problems with that. If you want to, you can see my um, uh, study on Daniel 9 in the show notes for this part in detail. Anyways, so all I want to say here is that Daniel 9.27 starts out of nowhere grammatically, but it also starts out of nowhere contextually. All of a sudden, you've got a rebuilt temple, and you've got this desolation that's going to happen. And again, this can't be with Antiochus, because Jesus and Paul point to this event, saying it's yet future. So the preterist interpretation that this is Jesus, that he fulfilled on the cross, makes no sense. It's probably one of the weakest arguments of preterism I, I think that there is. I would at least try to make the 70 AD if I was a preterist, but but they don't. Um, so anyway, this is, uh, this is Daniel 9 and a prophecy of a future temple. And that all relates to our conclusion of Matthew 24. Let's go back there. Well, technically, we're going to just go back to Luke 21, because I think that's where we're at. In fact, we made that big Daniel detour there, because we wanted to explain verse 21 in Luke 21, uh, or rather, verse 20, which says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. And then it says, When you see those in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart. So it begins to talk about what Matthew 24 makes clear is the, the, the abomination standing in the holy place, is what Jesus says there in Matthew 24. When you see that happen, that Daniel was talking about, then you flee, and it picks up right there, and here in Luke 21, those are the days of vengeance, which are which, which are written, which all things which are written may be fulfilled. Again, that's kind of a weighty sum there. All things that are written are going to be fulfilled. Anyway, the so what we were doing there was that we were showing that indeed. Jerusalem surrounded by armies is must be a future event as well. And so what I'm going to now show is that the same is true with this other very important proof text in uh, Luke 21 verse 24 which says and they and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This, in my opinion, is probably the verse which uh, which makes people try to say, like a futurist even would go so far as to say, well, Luke 21 and Matthew 24, they're not the same speech. You know, clearly Jesus is over here talking about... And that's unfortunate, and I don't think that's probably the right interpretation of that, but I understand where they're coming from. But this is, but they're, they're saying that usually out of ignorance of what is said in Revelation chapter 11. So let's let's keep this in mind, the idea of falling by the edge of the sword, led away captives, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That idea makes us think of the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. Well, that's, that's a long time. So this must be 70 AD. But let's turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 is one of these Zoom chapters where it's going to talk about the two witnesses, and it's going to really carry us uh, through this biography of the two witnesses through the course of this three and a half year period that they that they prophesy. Let me read. Then I was given a read like a measuring rod, and the angel stood there saying, rise and measure the temple of God. Okay, very temple-centric, and there's good reason for that. The altar and those who worship there, but leave the court, leave out the court which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Okay, 
here's an interesting thing. First of all, I would even submit that the outside the temple given to the Gentiles may even be that reference to the wing of the temple, that is to say an out, outer wing of the temple, which is uh, what some people figure with that wing in Daniel 9, but nevertheless. Um, so don't measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they're going to trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, this is really interesting because it shows that the abomination of desolation time period, This we know for sure that this abomination, of, like Daniel says, when you see the abomination standing, you know, standing in the holy place, you've got three and a half years before it's all over. Okay, and here we're told that during that three and a half years, or in this case it says it as 42 months, again, the Bible really wants us to not take this as an allegorical thing, it says it a million different ways, 42 months, that the Gentiles are going to tread the holy city underfoot. So, something happens at the beginning of this three and a half years of the abomination of desolation that is going to be considered a, a trampling of the holy city by the Gentiles. And that, and that we can see there that the, the time of the Gentiles is essentially completed at the end of this 70, well, in this case, at the end of the 42 months. But the cool thing about that is, if you do the math and you, you, you see all this other stuff that's going on, that's also the end of the 70 weeks period, which actually makes the whole reason the 70 weeks prophecy was given, if you read the first, uh, like verse 24 of Daniel 9, 70 weeks are determined of your for your city and your uh, your holy people to make an end of transgression, da, 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 da. all these things that uh, I think that we went over to some degree simply are not, or at least I will in my study of Daniel 9, that you know maybe you can make a case for one or two of them, but these things have not happened. Uh, most of the majority of those things, you have to do some pretty f fancy footwork in order to make sure that, that, that all that stuff is gone. Or like sin and transgression aren't, you know, not not the punishment for them or the righteousness because of them, or, or as a result of Christ's death, but really the actual transgression itself, the stuff that we only see in. Oh my goodness! Okay, I'm losing my voice. Okay, so anyway, we've got here in Revelation two a description of this the Gentiles in the three and a half year period. Now there's no sense in seventy A.D. in which three and a half years has anything to do with them trampling the city. There's no way to get around that in my opinion the, the siege didn't last for three and a half years and, and, and as we go on to read here uh, we certainly don't you can't make a case for this being 70 AD I mean these are the two olive trees da, da, da. and if anyone wants to harm them fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies and if anybody wants to harm them he must be killed in this manner they, they have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have the power over waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, also where our Lord was crucified. And those, and those from the people's tribes, uh, tongues, and anyway, I know that uh, the preterists would have this be, be a lot of symbolic stuff of the church and what have you, but... but, but uh, we can go on here in Revelation and read a lot of things like this and just have to come to the conclusion that the Bible is just an error on every page. You know, when it says a third of the earth will, you know, a third of the green grass is destroyed in the first trumpet, uh, or the, you know, eventually all the green grass is destroyed and, the, and a third of the water is turned bitter, or something like a great mountain is thrown into the sea which turns the water bitter, and then later on, you know, all the fish in the sea die, and we're not, 
you know, and, and 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 we could go on and on and on about the things that are happening and the beheadings and the everything, man. I mean, we just have to say is not real. That it and and it, it's so hard to do because Revelation, despite using terms like beast and stuff like that, you can see it's it's not it, it's talking as if it's not it's not as poetry. It's saying. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended into in, heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In that same hour, hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave, up, gave glory to the God of heaven. Like that verse right there. I'm just picking randomly anything in Revelation. You don't, you don't get any allegorical options there. It just says... In that same hour, there was a great earthquake. You know, or, or it says that the peoples, the tribes, tongues, and nations, like all these peoples, will will see their bodies for three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in their graves. I mean, do you understand the severity of, of making this all, trying to cram it into 70 AD somehow? I mean, in absence, of course, of anything like this happening, you've got to just change it all. What a danger that is. I mean, we could go through Revelation, and this is what you trade, and this is why I think R.C. Sproul does such a great disservice. He's got the, the his one problems were, you know, the verses like, uh, this generation won't pass till so you see all these things fulfilled, which I would suggest is much more easily explained just grammatically and contextually being the generation that sees those signs. And he, and he, and he, and he trades, to try to explain that one verse... He basically trades, in my opinion, the Bible. He says, okay, well, then all of a sudden the Bible doesn't mean what it says anymore because I have to make that one verse make sense. And the reason I guess I'm so passionate about it and the reason it's been really bothering me is because one of the things, the reasons that I like prophecy is because it has revealed to me the excellence and the trustworthiness of, and the perfectness of God's word. It reveals to me, like, when Jesus says something, like, he doesn't, we shouldn't take it as, like, well, you can just twist it and do all kinds of stuff with it, because, you know, he doesn't, I don't know, what, whatever, you, you have to minimize, at the very least, I don't want to try to belittle what, what's going on, but, but they're minimizing what he's saying, because they got to make it, you know, work. When I'm looking at it, and every day I'm becoming more like, this dude says stuff, like, on three different levels, and all of them are perfectly true. It, he, it, it gives me such, I'm so excited to read how he responds to something, because when you see how he was basically connecting like eight dots in like all the prophets and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and he was referring to things that you would never know unless you knew all that stuff, and they all fit perfectly, and I've got to give that view of scripture up that has never failed me. The, 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 the reason every skeptic that writes me and says, hey, didn't you know that there was a problem in the Bible here? And I'm like, well, I never heard that one. I'll look it up. And sure enough, Jesus was saying something cool and he was referring back to something else. And, you know, that skeptic goes away like, ah, I guess you got me on that one. But, uh, you know, I'll be back. Well, I got to give all that up. The Bible that has never given me any reason to take it any other way but just what it says. Trust it. It says it's going to happen. You haven't seen it. You don't have to make it be something that hasn't happened just because you haven't seen it. You've seen enough of it work to know that you can trust it if it says it's going to happen and it doesn't give you any reason to, to, to believe otherwise. 
So I've got to give all that up. And now, not only do I have to look at Revelation and these these verses that I'm looking at and say, well, yeah, none of this is going to happen. I mean, this all has to do... I, I have to minimize what it says, but I also have to sort of make it be kind of petty. And, and what I mean by that is like, okay, like the worst thing that ever happened was 70 AD and like all this great language of great mountains being thrown into the sea and men of the earth mourning and everybody in the world, you know, and all these horrible things are happening. And really, it's just talking about a, a run-of-the-mill sacking of a city by Rome. I mean, Rome sacked cities like nobody's business. I mean, it wasn't, and there was a lot worse than the 70 AD sacking in a lot of cases. That's, that's what the book of Revelation is about? That's what Jesus was warning us about? I mean, that is kind of petty if that's what the great the great warnings of scripture are about and to, to have that as my now what I'm left with is a kind of pettyish bible that's wrong frequently uh, about what it says and I don't know any other nice way to say that that's what I traded okay at this point I get into more specific things about this particular individual situation, so I'll just end this audio here. If you want to check the show notes, you can go to any one of the websites, BibleProphecyTalk.com, NowhereToRunRadio.com, look for this episode, which is 9-27-2013, and you'll see links, for example, the debunkings of the Jesuit conspiracy thing from both a Calvinist and a Seventh-day Adventist perspective, as well as uh, a lot of the other details refuting things like historicism other uh, partial preterism stuff as well as links to the commentaries that are relevant like the daniel 9 stuff as well as a a refutation of the day year theory that i did while doing i think daniel 8 will all be in the uh section here the the show notes of this particular episode thanks, thanks for, listening, for listening and we'll if talk you to like you soon a free Bye-bye. copy of the christianity 101 dvd which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.